Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. In popular culture, in anime, in children's books and video games, there is a character who goes by the name of Yasuke, an African samurai. But we know that in these media, characters can do things which in real life people cannot, so one might have assumed that Yasuke was not real. Could there really have been an African samurai, the highest-ranking military warrior in early modern Japan? Well, in this case, truth is at least as strange as fiction, for Yasuke was indeed a real person. And his story is incredible. Arriving in Japan in 1579, in the service of the Jesuit missionary Alessandro Valignano, Yatsuke caught the eye of Oda Nobunaga, one of the most important feudal lords in Japanese history and a unifier of the country. Within just two years, Yatsuke was a samurai, the first and only black person to hold this title at the time. Who exactly was Yasuke? How did he come to Oda Nobunaga's attention? And why did Nobunaga choose to make Yasuke a samurai? And what does Yasuke's story tell us about early modern Japan and the agency of African people? Is popular culture the best way to tell the stories of people whose lives have such silences in the archives? To answer these questions, I'm pleased to welcome novelist Craig Shreve, author of One Night in Mississippi, winner of Amazon's Breakthrough Novel Award in 2010, his second novel, African Samurai, will be published later this month. And for those of you who love the small screen, you'll be excited to learn the rights to this incredible story have been bought by Netflix. Craig Shreve, welcome to Not Just the Tudors, and I'm absolutely delighted to talk with you about this wonderful novel. Thank you. I'm glad to be here and look forward to our conversation. So I'd like to start by thinking about the relationship between the novel and the historical evidence about the African samurai, possibly the only African samurai, certainly the first. And I know that there's been recent publications on him, historians Thomas Lockley and Geoffrey Girard referenced their work. So I wanted to know, first of all, what was it, once you had read this, that convinced you that he also needed a novel? Does this genre make things possible that nonfiction cannot? Absolutely. Fiction gives you the opportunity to speculate, fill in some of the blanks that exist, and there are quite a few blanks in Yasuke's story. 
But more importantly, we don't have anything that was written by Yasuke himself in terms of a diary, a journal, or even a set of letters. Since there are facts that are known about him, but there's nothing about his kind of inner world that we know. All we have is observations of him. So fiction gives you a chance to get inside of a character's head and present what you think that the world would have looked like to them and how they would have processed their experiences. That was really what kind of drew me into wanting to present this story and this character in fiction. And I think that's especially important if we think about the silences in the archives that surround Black history, especially African history. I wonder if you could talk a little about the decisions you had to make about the relationship between your writing and the historical record. So I think it's important, even with fiction, to try to be historically accurate where possible because you are talking about real people who actually existed, even though they may be centuries gone. So I did try to stick to what is known and try to represent people in a respectful way. That doesn't always mean representing them in a positive way, because this is a very violent period of history and people did horrible things. Even people who are generally good people had to engage in violence and other acts that we today would not view in a positive light. There is a balance between presenting people positively and also respecting the truth. But in terms of the relationship between fiction and what's known, I think you take what's known as your base and you layer the fiction on top of that. I compare it to archaeology, where maybe you've dug up a town and you can see the foundations of the town, but then you have to speculate based off the evidence of what that would have looked like, what the everyday life was like, what the culture there was like. So there's a lot of building that's involved, and there is a lot of guesswork and imagination, but you do have a foundation to build off of. I think that's a really helpful metaphor. And I absolutely take your point about respecting people in the past having a responsibility to people in the past actually also means a responsibility to tell the truth about them. Can we talk a bit about late 16th century Japan? Can we set the scene? Could you tell me how it was governed and where the samurai fit into the picture? Sure. Yasuke arrived in Japan in 1579. That is during the Sengoku period, which is a period of Japanese history identified as from 1467 to 1615, which was marked by feudal warfare. The kind of central authority in Japan was there in name only. For all intents and purposes, each of the regions were self-governed by warlords or daimyos. And so you can really go all the way back to late 12th century and the Genpai War, which is when we really see the emergence of the shogun as the dominant political force instead of the emperor. Prior to that, shogun was always a temporary title that would be given out to someone in times of war. Shogun means great general. But there was a succession dispute that led to this Genpei War in the late 12th century, and the Minamoto clan were victorious, and so they installed their candidate for emperor, but they also named one of their own members as shogun as a permanent position, and that's when the emperor became more of a figurehead and the shogun became the dominant power. And so that leads forward all the way into this period, but in this period of late 16th century, the shogun had lost control of the regions and these warlords were self-governing and they were fighting to expand their own territories. They were keeping the taxes that they typically had been sending to the capital. And a man named Oda Nobunaga, who had emerged during this late section of the Sengoku period as the kind of dominant warlord and one who was striving to reunify Japan under his own banner. And so that's the scenario that Yasuke arrives in. African Samurai tells us that powers like Portugal were trading with Japan at this time. So should we imagine 
at this period of time in the history that early modern Japan is outward facing? It's accessible, I would say. Japan is, has a long <laughs> history of being mostly isolationist. So even when it's open to foreign trade, still with heavy restrictions. And so, for example, the Portuguese were doing a booming business of shuttling goods back and forth between China and Japan because there was a trade moratorium between Japan and China directly. Even when Japan was open border, it still was with significant restrictions and quite isolated. Okay, well, let's pick up the story of Yasuke now. And let's start by talking about what we know of his life before he came to Japan. Very little is known of his life before he came to Japan. There are writings from a missionary named Solier who refers to Yasuke as being of the Makwa tribe from Mozambique. But those writings are from, I believe, 1627. So they're quite a ways after Yasuke's arrival. And so there's reason to dispute that. I did go with that in the novel because it is the only documented source of his origin. But there are other people who make compelling cases for him as being from Ethiopia or from Sudan. So there's not a lot that's known about Yasuke prior to his arrival in Japan, but he certainly would have had some military training. And at some point he came into the service of a high-ranking missionary named Alessandro Valignano, and that is the individual who he came to Japan with. He was serving as Valignano's bodyguard. And so the missionaries weren't supposed to have bodyguards. They were supposed to rely on their faith to protect them, but it seems pretty common for them to have suspiciously intimidating, well-trained valets. And so that is the role that Yasuke was in when he arrived in Japan. I was struck by the way you conveyed Yasuke's capture by white men in Africa and his subsequent transportation and enslavement. The entire system seemed so well organized. And I suppose it reminded me of the transatlantic slave trade at its height in the 18th century. And I wondered if here was a moment where either you were finding research that was suggesting there was a highly orchestrated system in the 1560s or 70s, or perhaps this was an area you used later evidence, or perhaps this is where the novelist prerogative fills in understandable gaps in the historical record. Yeah, exactly. That section of the novel is not based off of research. It is based off how slave trades operated. As you indicate, possibly in later times, it may not have been that well organized in that period, but certainly it was booming business, unfortunately, and operated along those lines. So we have Yasuke as a bodyguard to Valignano, who's an Italian Jesuit, who's going to try and introduce Christianity to the Far East. And what's extraordinary is the journey from Portugal to Japan takes five years. <laughs> and in this period, you have Yasuke learning the history of Japan and its customs and its language. How true is this? How is it possible that when he arrives, he can speak Japanese and understand its culture? So it is certain that Yasuke understood some Japanese, probably not as fluent as I portray him in the novel, but later periods when he's come under Nobunaga's service, they would often dine together and sometimes privately. So he was able to communicate. He had learned enough Japanese to speak with people and have conversations with people. How fluent he was, of course, is impossible to know, but it's certainly the speculation of him having been educated in those customs and language along the way are, I think, well-founded, although certainly not based off of documented evidence. So when Yatsuke and Valignano arrived in Japan, yep. you've written the novel of a Jesuit march inland into the Osaka prefecture. And you create this sense of a highly orchestrated march with symbolic aspects that were really going to jar with Japanese religion and culture. Can you tell us about that and how the Japanese responded to the missionaries? 
Sure. Certainly Valignano wanted to make an impression. And so that is why there's all of the pageantry involved with the arrival in Kyoto, which was the capital at the time. And so it's important to understand that Africans were somewhat common, I guess, in the port cities working on boats that were coming in for trade, etc. But in central Japan at the time, many people had never seen an African before. And Yasuke as well, he was listed in one document as being six foot two, but the average height of the Japanese male in the late 16th century was 5'1". So it would be the equivalent of seeing a seven footer with a skin color that you've never seen before. So when he arrived in Kyoto, people crushed into the streets to come see him. And there was a riot in which three deaths were reported. So he was certainly an incredible spectacle when he arrived in the capital. And that's what kind of attracted Nobunaga's attention initially and brought him before him. And then his first meeting with Nobunaga, Nobunaga ordered that he be stripped and scrubbed because he thought that this skin color was some type of joke or prank that someone was trying to play on him. The two of them got off to a rough start there, but from there they ended up forming a friendship, which of course results in Yasuke becoming the first ever foreign-born samurai and the only African samurai. Tell us about Nobunaga. What do we know about him and his likes and dislikes? It's really interesting reading about Nobunaga because you come to realize that the idea of impartial history is a very recent innovation. There are histories written about Nobunaga that portray him as a literal demon, and there are histories that portray him as a very progressive nation builder type of person. And so I'm sure the truth is somewhere in between. He did have a kind of interest in foreign goods and some of the European wares and that kind of thing, the clothing, the wine, the gifts, etc. He does seem to have quite a bit of interest in kind of the rest of the world. But at the same time, he did also have a respect for Japanese traditions. He was big into tea ceremonies, into the practice of no theater. And there's definitely evidence to support the idea of him as being a somewhat progressive leader. His successor, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, enforced a very strict class enforcement in the nation when he took over. But during Nobunaga's period, he would elevate people based off of merit, regardless of what family they came from or what class they were born into. And Yasuke is evidence of that. Toyotomi is actually evidence of that as well. And there are a number of people. He certainly seemed very progressive in that sense. And in terms of some of the innovations that he introduced during his attempt at reunification. But yeah, there's definitely wildly varying viewpoints about Nobunaga. And again, as I said at the top, he's one of those individuals who's done some very positive things and has done some very horrible things as well. Without giving away any spoilers from your novel, what do we know from the evidence about how Yatsuke came to serve Nobunaga? Okay. So he was gifted to Nobunaga by Valignano, most likely in an attempt to gain favor for the church's mission in Japan, because Nobunaga was certainly known as the most powerful figure in Japanese politics and Japanese military as well at the time. It's not entirely clear if that was a decision by Valignano or a decision by Nobunaga. It seems very unlikely that Nobunaga would have asked for Yasuke as a gift, but he certainly could have made it clear that he would appreciate it as a gift. So it's a little bit unclear whose decision it was, but Valignano gave him to Oda Nobunaga as a gift in an attempt to curry favor for the church's mission. And there's very much a sense here that Yasuke is not the master of his own destiny. I mean, he may not be enslaved anymore, but he is certainly being traded as if he is a slave. People are making decisions about where he goes. 
Yeah, absolutely. And at that point in Yasuke's journey, he is more of an object than an individual. He's there to serve a purpose and he's evaluated based off of what value he can offer. Do you think he knew that he was likely the only African in all of central Japan? I think that certainly would have been clear to him shortly after he came into Nobunaga's service, if he wasn't aware of that before. I'm sure the reaction from the crowds when he arrived in Kyoto probably was an indication of that. But then certainly it would have been in a very homogenous environment, traveling with the Yoda clan when they arrive at Azuchi, etc. There could have been some European missionaries that were there, but he would have been the only African amongst them. So all the indications are that he was welcomed in quite well, but certainly there's still feelings of isolations when no one around you looks like you. Yeah, so although there's a sense of what we might call othering, people are impressed and they're welcoming, but as you say, eventually that's got to tell after a while. Yeah, and so the interesting thing there is that because people in central Japan had no experience with Africans, there were also no stereotypes or anything that Yasuke had to overcome. So that was an interesting part of the story to me as well that some of the typical stories that you read in fiction where you see cultures mixing, there's a sense of having to overcome your background. That wasn't really the case. It doesn't seem with Yasuke. And so I think that's a unique element of the story. Absolutely. And how amazing to imagine yourself into that moment, because wouldn't it be incredible to understand a mindset that didn't have these centuries of right. racial prejudice that we are living off the back of and, you know, that it permeate our culture? I'm Tristan Hughes, host of The Ancients from History Hit, where twice a week, every week, we delve into our ancient past. I'm joined by leading experts, academics and authors who share incredible stories from our distant history and shine a light on some of antiquity's great questions. Was the Oracle of Delphi really able to see into the future? The Oracle certainly operated, certainly gave many thousands these prophecies, and they were taken seriously in most cases. What can be discovered from lost civilizations? There was a lot of volcanic activity. And in one of these sites called Quikilco, actually got covered with volcanic flows. And the early archaeologists, they used dynamite, you know, to get at this archaeology. And was King Arthur actually real? Ambrosius is far less well known. It looks as if he has got a significant impact on the creation of the Arthur story itself. You can expect all of this and more from the Ancients on History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
Once he's in Nobunaga's household, the novel explores how Yatsuke grew closer to the order. Why did you choose wrestling to illustrate his acceptance, I suppose, into Japanese society? So there aren't any kind of confirmed representations of Yasuke, but there are some that are potential representations of Yasuke. And one of them is a silkscreen of a sumo wrestling where one of the wrestlers is significantly darker than everyone else. And so some people speculate that maybe Yasuke, again, Nobunaga had a passion for Japanese traditions. And so sumo is one of those things that he enjoyed watching and he often rewarded sumo wrestlers quite well when they performed well for him. So it's pretty likely that Yasuke would have been involved in that. Another feature of Japanese culture that you feature prominently in your novel is storytelling, including plays. You describe permanent stages in Nobunaga's castles and players ordered in from Kyoto and Yasuki learning a lot from these episodes. How do we know about these stories today? And why do you think they might have been important in Yasuke's integration into Japanese society? Some of those no plays are still in existence. And so, for example, there's a reference to Nobunaga reciting part of one before he goes into the Battle of Okazama. That is based off of records. That's a true fact. In that play, I chose to actually expand the reference on because I think it relates to Yasuke as a samurai, but one who's not traditional samurai. And so the no play in question is about a female samurai who's quite famous. And so I thought there was a nice parallel there. And as well as without spoiling it, the way that her story ends versus the way that Yasuke's story ends, there's a connection there in terms of the decisions that they both are asked to make. Initially, that idea came from the actual fact that Nobunaga was a big No fan and that he did recite part of that particular play before going into battle. But then expand it from there as I started to see some of the kind of connection points. Now, as you've imagined it in your novel, almost past the time, Yatsuke <laughs> watched the samurai practice and then began learning their movements himself. Can you give us a sense of I suppose, of what a samurai was and how they differed to a soldier in, say, Western Europe at this time in terms of craft and tactics and weaponry? So at this period in Japanese history, samurai meant that you were a professional soldier. There were foot soldiers who were conscripts. They were farmers, peasants. They had other responsibilities and they were conscripted into service when they were needed. But samurai were the permanent warrior class they were paid to train. They also were a separate social class. They had a different set of laws in some cases than commoners. I think the major difference is that, and again, it comes from the fact that Japan was isolated and didn't have a lot of foreign invasion. Warfare in Japan developed as an individual combat focused activity. And so whereas you see in European warfare, it's more of like units functioning together in Japan, it really developed as more of a one-on-one -on -one challenge system. Now, it certainly started to evolve into more advanced warfare and units working together and et cetera, but that's not really the base of it. And for example, that is one of the reasons why you don't see a lot of shields in Japanese warfare, because shields essentially work well when you have groups of people working together, and that's just not the background of Japanese warfare. So it does still have some influences, even as Japanese warfare evolved into kind of more modern techniques. That's oh, so interesting. And from your research, why do you think Nobunaga chose to make Yasuke 
a samurai. I suppose his enormous height might have been part of it. But <laughs> Yeah, certainly there are a number of directions that you could go with that. He was an imposing figure and he would have had some training. So he certainly would have been a very useful individual to have as a samurai and as a protector as well. But it's also quite possible that the initial reasoning was, again, Nobunaga, he really enjoyed foreign gifts, foreign trinkets, etc. It's possible that the initial reasoning behind making the Asuki a samurai was more for the novelty of it. It's certainly not a possibility that you want to deny. But regardless of that, there's no doubt that the two men had a deep respect for one another. As I said, Yasuke was often invited to dine with Nobunaga alone, and that is a tremendous honor that most samurai were not granted. So... Whether that respect was there from the very beginning or not, it certainly was there as their relationship developed. Fascinating. Everything that we shan't know about that, <laughs> that you can imagine. Yeah. And important aside for a moment, I was fascinated by the account you give of women warriors in Japan, known, and I hope my pronunciation is okay here, as Ona Bugesha and Onamusha. Could you tell us about these women and their role in society? Yeah. And so that's a somewhat debated point as well. Women definitely trained as samurai, and it is likely that was mostly as a kind of defensive protection when soldiers and samurai were called off to battle and then the women were still there and they would be able to defend themselves and defend the property. But there's some archaeological evidence showing that there were female bodies at some of these battlefields that were quite a distance away from the home base. So there's evidence to suggest that women might have played more of a role in actual battle than what's typically accepted. But I would say that's all still developing. There of course are people on either side of it, but there is evidence there to suggest that women samurai were potentially more prominent. And hopefully that's something that people will continue to dig into and we'll get more information about. Now, there are some heart-wrenching moments in African samurai, which brought me to tears. There's one such scene when Yatsuke had to decide whether to separate who he was from what he had to do. I won't say anything more than that because I'll give you a plot away. But what compelled you to write such personal crises of conscience into his story? I started off with the assumption, of course, of Yasuke being basically a good person. Otherwise, I wouldn't be interested in writing about him. So then there are moments where he has to do things to survive that would go against what we would typically find acceptable. So there are a number of moments like that in the novel. And again, I thought it was important to show that most likely in those scenarios, people would do what they had to do to survive. It was just that period of history where survival in some instances would take precedence over morality. But it is interesting to take a character through those steps and have them struggle through them and see how they get to that decision and how it affects them. But that's a scenario that was probably a struggle for so many people during these periods of history where violence is an everyday part of your life. And you also broached the subject of revenge with Yatsuke contemplating whether he would wish to take revenge on the many people in his life who've wronged him. I ask this as a non-fiction writer. Was it difficult to craft thoughts about the morality of a person, this period of history, whose voice is largely silent in the records and who experienced much that we have not? Yeah, certainly you place yourself in that position, but you also have to take into account all of their past experiences as well and how those experiences would play into how they would respond to certain things, how would they feel about certain things. And certainly in terms of revenge in particular, I think Yasuke would have loved to 
have had the opportunity. And I don't think he would have hesitated to enact revenge on the people who had come to his village and taken him away. That part, I think he would not be conflicted about, <laughs> quite honestly. But I also think that if you're developing years or in a violent environment, you also have a very different relationship with violence than what we do today and maybe have a kind of more casual view of it, which is not to say that you would more casually engage in it, but that you would probably have a different perspective on it and maybe see how fruitless it's been in every instance in which you've seen that happen before. Yes, it's so interesting. One's attitude to violence, to revenge, to honour, to all these ideas is so rooted in one's culture. It's an area where it isn't so much a sense of our own individual perspective as the collective perspective, perhaps, that's influencing us there. It is a very interesting process to try to understand what the relationship people had with violence. So there's the scene in the courtyard where Nobunaga tortures his assassin and Yasuke kind of looks around to see how people respond and people respond quite acceptingly because they've lived in a country at war since the day they were born. Every person there. Yeah, it's interesting trying to work through how people would view that. African Samurai explores the tensions in Japan between history and tradition and the future. Did these feature quite prominently in the evidence that you were examining? I wonder, in other words, what made you emphasize them in your novel? Yeah, I would say that, to be honest, is not an area where I spent a lot of time researching that because it just seems like a common sense that during a transitional period, there were always people who resist change. So again, there is evidence from Nobunaga as being someone who embraced anything new that could be helpful. So he was certainly someone who would be seen as an agent of change, but of course he would have people amongst his circle who were less thrilled about some of the changes and the pace of changes. So the individual who betrays him is certainly a noted conservative, but as far as how they felt about these changes, that part's not based on evidence, but it is based off the fact that they were known to be a very conservative individual. Finally then, we talked earlier, I said that when he's presented as a gift, obviously that doesn't involve his agency, but this ultimately is, well, I wonder if you think it is, a novel about the agency of Black Africans and whether through the process of writing a novel, your thoughts on agency shifted if one had only read works of history on this period rather than imagined oneself into it in the way that you've done here. Do you think one's perspective would be different? So there's a couple things there. One is certainly seeing an African come into our culture where they were so readily accepted. That shifted my perspective and made me think about things quite a bit differently. As far as agency, I would say when I think of slavery, one of the things I think about is just the sheer waste of human potential. How many people could have been doctors or inventors or artists or humanitarians or could have accomplished things and contributed, but they were never given a chance to be anything more than essentially a physical body. And those people are all lost to history. And Yasuke was certainly on that path. And if his story goes just a little bit differently at certain points, no one would ever know who he is. He would just be another anonymous slave who's never had the opportunity to accomplish anything. But instead, because things have played out the way they did, we still know who he is today. And so that part of it certainly was in my mind as I was writing it, in that here's one individual who could be lost to history, should be lost to history, really, but was given an opportunity and made the most out of it. And then juxtapose that against the millions who never had that opportunity. Well, your novel is beautiful. 
I read it in one sitting and I think it's just fantastic that you have taken this character, this person of Yatsuke and by writing a novel brought him to the attention of so many more people. And I can't wait to see the Netflix series on the basis of the book as well. But for the time being, everybody needs to get into their online shopping baskets or rush into their independent bookshops and put in an actual basket, African Samurai, which is just coming out this month. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Talk to you. Thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.